Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Virginia Lee, BioCentury Associate Editor, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishman, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, I had Translation and Clinical Development Coverage. Today, Steve will be giving us the latest from Washington as we head into tomorrow's election. But first, Lauren is here to discuss the growing influence of ICER in discussions of drug pricing among payers and biopharmas and the role it could play under the next administration, regardless of who's in office. So Lauren, to start us off, what does ICER do and what role does it have in the industry today? ICER is a nonprofit organization that acts as a health technology assessment agency in the U.S. The U.S. is one of the few countries that doesn't have a national agency to do that. And so we've been seeing that ICER has really stepped into a relatively influential role after speaking with payers in assessing the value of drugs, in looking at the cost effectiveness, the clinical benefit, and uh, the budget impact that new therapies have, especially high impact new therapies. I have a question actually, and Steve, you may know the answer to this as well. Historically, has ISA been one of the main forces pushing for value-based drug pricing? There's a lot of people who are pushing for value-based pricing. The the problem, of course, is how do you define value? The way that a pharmaceutical CEO would define value and an insurance company CEO would define value and a patient would define value are quite likely to be different, right? And then you've got the second question, which is really the elephant in the room, which is once you've figured out how valuable something is, then how do you translate that value into a price? How much of the value that a drug company creates should that company attain and how much of that should go to society? Those are value judgments and no amount of analytical information is going to answer that question. And so Lauren, if I understand right, what you're saying is ICE is sort of moving to a position in the U.S. among the industry as being highly respected for the model it's come up with for assessing value and putting a price, let's say, exactly on that. I think so. There are many different organizations. There are a lot of academic groups that are developing different frameworks to try to assess value. A lot of payers have their own metrics as well, but ISR sort of stands out as an independent third party and someone that's been able to do this quickly, especially as they're getting more buy-in from the pharmaceutical and biotech players. Whether or not they are pushing for this value-based pricing, they're definitely creating a tool that will help assist that. When you say they have buy-in from the biopharmaceutical industry, I'm wondering whether if that's true, because in the past, when I spoke with biotech CEOs privately, a lot of them really have a lot of problems with ICER. They're really critical of it. I'm wondering if what you're saying is that's changed, or is it just the difference between what they say in public and what they'll say in private? I don't know that's changed. I've still heard quite a bit of that. But if you look at the people who are funding ICER, a lot of that's coming from the biotechs and pharmas, as well as the payers and other charitable organizations. But what we're seeing is that payers are putting more weight on the ICER analyses. And while the threshold prices that they're creating don't actually have any weight, you know, if a pharma wants to price their drug a certain way, it doesn't actually matter what ICER has suggested. Payers have historically used some tools to control how much a new drug is getting prescribed if it's priced way above that threshold. The fact that payers are accepting this may be changing the perception from some biotech players. And Lauren, I think you gave a a couple of uh, examples in your very nice story last week of where 
companies had not really hewed to ISA's recommendations. And what ended up happening was exactly that payers sort of restricted the amount that they ended up getting prescribed and put downward pressure on the price. Can you elaborate on those? Sure. A good example is the PCSK9 inhibitors. And we've just seen a few examples, but they're priced way above the threshold and ended up not doing that well in the first year on market and and the prices came down. And then drugs that were launched by the same companies later were then launched within the ISO threshold. I don't know how much the companies really do buy in. I guess that might've been the wrong phrase, but I think there is maybe a growing influence on on the way that some drugs are priced. What's going to be interesting is going to be if there are attempts, when there are attempts, to revive drug price controls in the next Congress, whether there's an explicit role for ICER there or not. Some of the legislation that's been proposed in the past has included roles for ICER, and some of it is, has attempted to um, carve them out of it. I think that's going to be very interesting to see. It will be. A lot of the payers that I spoke with think that there's going to be a role. Of course, that's something that we'll have to see. And the question is, if there is a role, what that would be, whether there's going to be an agency created that sort of replicates what ICER is doing, or if the government might contract ICER for specific work, or if they might just use that as a reference point, um, or as one of the many reference points to, to help try to assign value to drugs independently. And the sense you got from talking to folks was that ISA was going to want to remain independent. Yeah, I, I did speak with ISA as well, and, and they're not giving too many clues about what they'd like to see happen going forward. But a lot of the payers said the thing that makes the most sense for ISA and for whichever administration we have is to, to have ISA remain an independent organization. Switching gears a bit here, Steve, what should we be thinking about heading into tomorrow's election? Um, (laughs) don't say what you actually think (laughs) (laughs) look leaving it leaving it just in the the realm of the you know the biopharma world one of the things that i think is it's interesting i think is important to to remember is that whatever happens tomorrow and or whenever we know what the results are donald trump is still going to be president at least through january 20th right that's the critical time for containing COVID. Cases and fatalities are way too high now, and they're likely to increase as the winter drives people indoors and holidays bring families together. Just recently, Trump has said that he's going to fire Fauci. That's something that would have tremendous symbolic importance. I'm not sure that it would affect the actual response because the White House hasn't been listening to Fauci's advice for months, and his deputies can run the Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Steve, regardless of who's the next president, do you think we're likely to see a new director of NIH, which is another position really important for our industry? I think yes, definitely. I don't think that Francis Collins is going to stay there much longer. My understanding from people who have been in touch with him is that he's long planned to retire shortly after the election, regardless of, of the outcome of the election. I think that if Biden wins, he's certainly going to want to put his own person there, not due to any animosity towards Francis Collins, but I think that he'll want to have his his own team. I think that if Trump wins, that Collins would go. So either way, I think we're going to see somebody else new there. I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. You know, even in a Biden administration, I, I wouldn't expect just to snap back to 
what NIH has been doing, I don't know, it's such a big organization and, and resistant to change. There's been for a long while now, what's the balance of translational versus basic research? What's the role of NIH? I think the pandemic has accentuated that. It's really shown the importance of investment in biomedical science and innovation, much of which almost all labs around the country have some degree of NIH funding. I think that will be something we'll continue to report on. It'll be interesting to see whether there's a sort of a, a wholesale change in thinking at NIH or just a, an operational change in terms of or, being more effective. Or, or if there's a move to create new institutions for translational research, which is what I would advocate. There is pending legislation to create new institutions for translational science. Personally, I think that's the best way to go. I think that NIH is not likely to have the kind of flexibility to do what's needed. What Operation Warp Speed has demonstrated is what can happen when you have industry and government working together in a highly targeted way against specific problems. And I think that one of the lessons that could come out of COVID-19 will be the need to create new institutions and new ways of collaborating between government and um, industry and hopefully patient groups also. Some of the things with that, Steve, you know, when I talk, and this is even at the director level with NIH Institute directors, two things are clear. There's there's broad consensus on two things. One is that the institute structure is a mess. You have brain science going on in lots of places. You have sort of a hodgepodge of missions and, and of budgeting. It's really not the way you would design something from the the ground up, it's something that sort of evolved over time. I think the most recent one that they added is NCATS, I believe. I think that given all that we've seen this year, we may see more attention, maybe more funding go to the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. I spoke with the director of that institute for our back to school package. It's really important, and I think there's just a growing understanding through COVID of the need for equity in health outcomes and therefore including minorities and various underserved communities in clinical trials. And so that institute is dedicated to promoting and enabling that. So I I think that might be one part of NIH where we see a difference. The second thing I hear is the politics behind the cleanup inside and reorganizing institutes is just a mess and will basically never happen, not for a long time. So I just wonder if the idea of creating another institute would just add to that sort of feeling of... No, I what I'm talking about and what there's pending legislation is not to create another institute at NIH, it's to create institutions outside of NIH uh-huh. that would be responsible for translational science. It's very cumbersome to change it. It's not nimble enough to have the kind of large-scale change that is needed on the time frame that would be needed to do something and that the, the better policy would be to create a new institution completely separate from NIH and in some ways a rival to NIH. I, I think that the idea of having a little bit of competition for who has the best model for funding biomedical research would probably be a good thing. But getting back to the elections and what's going to happen this week and in the the coming months, I I do think that it's going to be really important to look at what happens with the leadership of HHS and the HHS agencies to try to bolster their independence and public confidence in those institutions during a really trying time that's going to be coming up in the next couple of months. So with the leading COVID-19 vaccines approaching their interim readouts, what sort of 
discussions are happening at the FDA right now regarding the initial rollout of those vaccines and what sort of decisions do they have ahead of them? I think there's going to be interim readouts from Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccine very soon, sometime in the next few weeks. If it's a strong readout saying that there's a strong signal of efficacy, then obviously that sponsor is going to apply for emergency use authorization. There's going to be an advisory committee meeting, and there'll be a lot of debate about what should be done. Part of that debate, I wrote a story about it last week, is whether the, an interim readout should lead to emergency use authorization or whether it should lead to expanded use or whether FDA should defer until there's more data. And there, there are people who are advocating all, all three of those paths. So what would the pros and cons of an expanded use pathway be? So expanded access, which other people call compassionate use, is a pathway that FDA has for allowing pre-approval access to medicines. It's different from emergency use authorization. The main differences are that it would be slower it would be much more under FDA's control, and it would probably be a more limited number of people who would be able to get access that way. There are some people who advocate expanded access precisely because it would be slower and more controlled. There are other people who oppose it precisely because it would be slower and more controlled. So where you stand on that really depends on whether you think that the risks of having an experimental vaccine widely used outweigh the, the benefits of having an experimental vaccine out there and widely used. And, and you have to remember, and it's hard to forget, that we're looking at this against the background of, of a pandemic that's out of control. Yeah, I, I think the way that we've previously talked about this discussion is sort of I don't know if I want to go as far as say irresponsible, but it would certainly be a weighty decision to give emergency use authorization that could end up scuppering the development of vaccines that could be better. There's no reason that the first vaccine to reach the goal line is necessarily the best one. On the other hand, you've got 100,000 new cases a day in the US and not getting something out as fast and broadly as possible by that view, irresponsible. So it's not an easy one to solve. I think it is also not obvious that emergency use authorization will hinder the development of, of other vaccines. If you look at it technically, in the way that FDA views it, is that emergency use authorization is not an approval, even though the president and others have portrayed it that way. It's a vaccine that's distributed under experimental use authorization is still experimental, and for that reason, FDA believes that placebo-controlled trials should continue and that the blinding, right, that, so that the trials that are ongoing shouldn't be unblinded. Right. It, it really boils down to whether the companies with EUA will unblind their trials. And also the timing that they might do. Moderna and Pfizer both said that they feel an ethical obligation to unblind their trials after emergency use authorization has been granted. But they might wait for several months to do that. They might wait until a vaccine is widely available to do that. And if they did that, it would give them time to finish their trials and it would give other companies that are coming slightly behind them time to get their phase three trials well underway. That's all we have time for today. Registration is open for our seventh BioCentury Bay Helix China Healthcare Summit. 
This digital event runs from November 9th to the 13th and includes strategic panels, one-on-one -on -one virtual meetings, company presentations, and two conference reports from our partner McKinsey. Register today to get immediate access to our pre-event program, including Biocentury Business Intelligence on China Biotech. All of the podcasts are available on our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 